Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Strive to Five podcast. As always, I am your host, Joseph Hadaway. And in this week's interview, I'm sitting down with Alexis Kingsbury. Alexis, to say the least, is a longtime entrepreneur, heavy focus in the uh, software as a service space. Companies include co-founder of Air Manual, co-founder of Spider Gap, partner at Bridging Insight Limited, and the f- founder of Parentpreneur Limited, where he also hosts his own podcast. So how are you doing today, Alexis? Yeah, really good. Thank you very much for having me, Joseph. Hey, we really appreciate you coming on. So I gave you a little bit of a brief bio there. What else can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I guess uh, where to fill in the gaps? Well, I mean, my background uh, pre even going to university, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, I suppose. Uh, back when I was even like at uh, uh, sort of in my very early years, I'd be selling um, car washing and <laughs> uh, drive sweeping and so on for 50p. Um, and uh, and even later on, like building websites in the kind of early uh, uh, dot-com bubble, <laughs> like building websites and getting paid traffic. Um, but I always felt like I needed to learn how to how to grow proper, bigger businesses. And so I went into management consultancy, did a few years working with some really large amazing companies like Honda and AstraZeneca and BP and UK government and all sorts. And then after that, started my own consultancy, which is Bridging Insight uh, with the uh, with my co-founder, with the aim of creating software businesses, um, partly because we wanted to create businesses that were assets that provided um, income regardless of of our time in the business. You know, we felt like as, as consultants, it felt like time for money. I think since then, I've actually learned ways in which you can uh, avoid that, but I didn't know that at the time. So <laughs> we thought we better create these software businesses. Um, and so the first one, well, actually, we tried lots of different ideas, uh, pivoted lots, and eventually ended up with Spider Gap. Built that over uh, about sort of nine, nine years, 10 years, something like that. Uh, and uh, now used by over 500 organizations around the world, including ones you'd have heard of like Pepsi and 3M and Swarovski and so on. Um, and then, yeah, I built that, built the leadership team, set them up so that I'm no longer operationally required in that in that business and neither is my co-founder. So uh, we're spending less than four hours a week on that, on that business and in that business. And um, uh, that allowed us to start another software business called Air Manual, in which we're working with uh, businesses that are typically sort of five to 250 employees, although there's some larger ones working with us, where they're looking to uh, improve their process, their team process management and sort out role onboarding and those sorts of things. So um, yeah, built a variety of things. Oh, and the Parentpreneur Accelerator, which I kind of did as a, as a side project to, to help out struggling entrepreneurs, particularly those that had uh, kids, uh, to build their businesses, so did the podcast and so on. Uh, although I recently uh, sold a Parentpreneur Accelerator uh, to a fantastic uh, chap called Michael Kittenjoes, who's going to be taking taking that baton and running with it and doing all the amazing things that I really wish that I'd get more time to do with it. It is, to say the least, quite an impressive resume. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's one of those things where uh, along the way, it didn't feel as rapid or whatever. It's often only in reflection moments like this where you have to explain it to someone else, particularly because you, I provide a potted history. You know, it's, it's kind of, I describe a 12 to 20 year journey there. 
Uh, and so it, it kind of feels really fast when you do it like that. But there's been various moments along the way where it felt really hard, impossible, unlikely. Uh, I've had various points at which I was encouraged by family and friends to give up the software business and just go back to consulting. So it's uh, it's not been uh, entirely smooth sailing the whole way. I mean, I think that's uh, we've heard, I've heard that from every entrepreneur I've talked to. It's never if it's all smooth sailing, you're doing something wrong or something of that sort. Yeah, it's been pretty unusual, I think, <laughs> to have it so smooth. So uh, you brought this up, you know, uh, when you're talking a moment ago about, you know, what attracted you to the SAAS space and you talked about freedom. Was it just that or, you know, did you see like a growing market or anything? Yeah, so I think uh, I, I've always loved technology in various forms. And so uh, that's why software as a service, as, a, as an industry has kind of, always attracted me i think because it it provides it provides a few things one is uh, i i love using technology to solve problems second as a model it's a highly valuable business asset to create it's often the tra- uh, tech businesses often attract some of the highest multiples because of the ability to scale and the ability uh, to provide recurring revenue streams and so on so i really like that uh, and then thirdly, the impact that you can have on people's lives, I think, is huge. You know, you can really add incredible value to people all around the world and in large numbers. And you can do things uh, and, and support them in ways that um, is, is perhaps more difficult and certainly not as scalable to do one to one or or through training and, 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 uh, and direct content which, uh, or facilitation, which is kind of what I've been doing a lot of at that time. So I think that's those are the reasons why yeah the SaaS industry was was something that I was really excited to be doing. And if we hear you on there, I mean I've heard, I've I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but I previously had another technology entrepreneur on, and he said the exact thing like the scalability in just the technology space by itself is ridiculous, especially when you compare it to I mean even something like retail or another you know more traditional industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean the. The, e- the relative ease, and it isn't always easy, but the relative ease versus some uh, industries of being able to reach lots of people and and, and support them through at least uh, certainly with the kind of basic levels of your product, right? You know, often these days, particularly with B2B, um, you're, the, there's an expectation of some service element or or at least kind of some hand-holding and account management. And so that makes it less straight up scalable than say selling a uh, selling an app for 99p each where people's expectations are pretty low other than, other than just being able to download it. And so therefore, of course, yeah, you can have millions of people just download the app and, uh, and, and it doesn't um, change your costs significantly. Yeah, there's lots of caveats to that, uh, but um, yeah, it, that ability to scale is, and, and therefore the excitement around that, the potential is, uh, yeah, is something that I've definitely drawn to. Definitely hear you there. And I also wanted to ask about this. You brought this up too. So you know, you mentioned you worked with some major companies. I think everyone's heard of, you know, Sony, 3M, Pepsi. How did you get your foot in the door there? And like, how hard was that to do? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a funny one. Like. Some of those, uh, so they came through different routes. In fact, all, I think all the three that you just mentioned uh, are quite nice examples. So if I take uh, Sony as an example, uh, that we uh, the connection there started with consulting work. So before we even created Spider Gap at all, and 
that started through a conversation with a friend who said, oh, I know this person, you should have a conversation with them. I think they're struggling with a problem you might be able to help them with. And so as a result of them going learning about their problem and thinking about it and going away and coming back with an idea of a solution and iterating on that until they felt, yeah, this, this could solve it and then come to an agreement on costs. And then doing a really good job of building and maintaining that relationship. So it means that now I have worked with basically every part of Sony PlayStation and I, and I have loved doing so and have added a lot of value to uh, that organization and yeah, have, re have really, really in enjoyed it. So, uh, and it's, it's provided a lot of benefits to, to our business as well. So that's an example of, you know, straight up outreach and networking and having conversations and follow up and, and building the relationship. On the flip side, 3M came to us in via our inbound channels that we have for SpiderGap. And so then they kind of tried us out online and then got in contact and said, hey, we want to kind of scale our usage and, and do it across this big group. And so then, yeah, uh, I think he, back, back then uh, I was having those uh, calls, but I don't tend to have to, uh, well, I don't, I don't have customer calls, I'm not really in SpiderGap now. So back then I was having those conversations to explore, okay, how, do, how can we support you in, in scaling your usage? Uh, as effectively as possible. So that was a nice combination because you've got some upfront online, if you like, service at the end. Um, and then there's been various others, uh, including Pepsi, where they find us online and start using us and pay and so on without really any interaction uh, with us. And, and um, you know, it, it, some, sometimes it's the opposite way around. Like we've got, there's an, a, a very large accountancy firm who they were using us in one particular uh, country and uh, and region and we said hey can we talk to you we'd love to explore how we can support you and great you know uh, getting more value and actually it's really difficult to get them on the phone <laughs> to to even have that conversation and so it's funny that we've had um different ends of the spectrum but i'm often reminded that the 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 approach of outreach and using your network and having those conversations and following up is often underutilized and yet it's so powerful particularly when you're talking about uh, some of those uh, bigger opportunities oh yeah definitely completely agree there and I, I like how you said it's multiple you have the sales funnel in place when say 3m and pepsi came knocking and you also have the network to get into sony I, that's applicable for so much more than technology i mean I hate to pull the your network is your net worth card, but it, it really is at the end of the day. I th absolutely. I think that's true. But also, I think that sometimes that that thought holds people back. I think that people think, oh, well, I haven't really got a good network, so that will hold me back forever. And I think there's often a, you know, when you go to events and, and people ask these um, uh, entrepreneurs that are uh, incredibly successful and achieve these amazing results. And they say, oh, if you only had $100 in your pocket and had to start again, how would you do it? And sometimes they'll vary that by saying, oh, and none of the contacts or whatever. Because I think there's, there is so much value in that network that it's almost like, well, you could take all that entrepreneur's money away, but they'd have the contacts to rebuild the business really, really quickly. And that's true, but it also isn't as difficult to build the network as people think. And so I think people hold themselves back because they think, well, I haven't got the network. And then, and so they think, well, so I can't achieve these great results, but also they don't invest in building that network. 
And it's actually surprisingly easy to do. All you need to do is work out who would be the ideal. And I say all you need to do. This is this is uh, each step of these is tricky, but not as tricky as people think. Um, which is identify who's the ideal people you need to be speaking to, whether it's potential partnerships or potential customers. Then uh, approach them in a way that isn't salesy. That isn't, hey, I offer this product or whatever. Instead, approach uh, approach with value and humility and uh, personalization, and and seek to learn and have a conversation. And typically, those people will be up for having a chat, and then ask them questions about them and their challenges and what they're looking to do, and identify where you might be able to add value, and then find an appropriate point uh, or way in which to offer that value. And that's how you build your network. And then nurture that. Don't let it drop. Don't be like, oh, and then I've not contacted them for a year. Like, I, once you've identified those amazing people to make sure that are in your network, keep nurturing that and building that. And pretty quickly, you'll have a stronger network than most people out there. But it's, I think people don't take those steps. They don't think about who do I really need to speak to and then take the step to reach out. And if they do reach out, they'll try and play a numbers game and do it too salesy and then they don't get responses and then they give up on it. Or they do have a few conversations, but they don't follow up. Or they do follow up once, but then when they don't get an immediate sale or, or result, they then don't nurture that relationship over time. I mean, definitely a solid point. I feel like building your network is easier now than it ever has been before. I mean, take this interview. You and I met over the internet. I had never heard of any of your companies. I'm 100% sure you've never heard of my podcast. But here we are right now, connecting. It's, I mean, what was what, two messages and an email away? Absolutely. Because, uh, because uh, you and I and millions of other people are so happy to connect with other people that approach with a genuine connection and interest and so on um, and and chat and explore. And it's amazing how many opportunities and things can come out of that. It was, it's, it's funny, I was reflecting that um, uh, I was looking, basically, I, uh, I had a team member who was looking back through my calendar and I think we identified that I've I have met and had direct one-to-one -one conversations with more than 30 people that I had never had conversation, you know, one-to-one -one conversations with before over the last couple of months. And the impact of that has been huge. You know, the the partnerships, the the customers, the referrals, the the speaking engagement, the podcast interviews, like all of those sorts of things, and particularly when you can then combine them and overlap them, it, it has a huge impact on on what your business can can achieve. But I think often people hold back from it because they worry about what the other person will think when they reach out and, and they're scared about that kind of side or or they think that if they do that then that won't be scalable and so you know oh, I, I can't go and reach out to people and have 30 conversations because i can't scale that into 3000 a month you know every two months and of course that's not the point <laughs> so <laughs> so i think that people hold themselves back from doing those things despite the fact that i think most people would agree your your network is your network Oh, yeah, definitely there. I mean, it's if you can get over the fear of, I guess, you know, rejection and what they might say back, it's absolutely invaluable. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but and it, but it's hard. It is hard. It's um, it's, it's one of those things that is easy and hard. It's easy because 
uh, once you understand the steps and once you see it work, you, you go, oh, why wasn't they doing this before? And it's so simple, but it's hard because you have to get over some fundamental fears and, and self-limiting beliefs. And um, yeah, it's one of the things that I practice as a regular exercise is ident I identify what are the fears that are currently not serving me and holding me back. And I literally write them out and list them and then identify what could I do today that would force me to face that fear <laughs> and and do it like one of one of them was around um uh, the fear of judgment and particularly around posting on social media and getting myself out there and i decided the only way i could properly overcome that fear was just to start doing live videos where i don't have the opportunity to to filter or to edit or delete or whatever uh, before it reaches the world and so i just forced myself to start doing lives and did them every day and uh yeah initially they were rubbish <laughs> in my view <laughs> but i started getting great feedback on them and i got better as i did them and got more and greater feedback and i think but probably most importantly the fear disappeared and now i don't fear that judgment of posting on social media and and so on because i realized that actually the bigger fear should probably be that it, uh, you'll know it'll never get an engagement or whatever um, but of course the only way to do that is is by doing it you have to get out there and the more you the more you share and the more value you share the more engagement it creates and it snowballs um, so yeah so overcoming those fears can only really be done by doing it I mean you, you basically just described exposure therapy in just a few <laughs> words there I mean it's exactly what it is yeah, which I wouldn't recommend for all fears and phobias, but it's pretty good. It's pretty good for it's pretty good for things like uh, uh, fear of judgment, fear of, fear of failure, fear of public speaking, those sorts of things. It's uh, it's pretty effective. Definitely agree with you there. And you know, moving on from I guess you know our current topic, and you know, you've grown four that I know of at least very sizable software firms, and from what I've heard, at least a few more. What and you know you're actively involved in since I guess you sold Parentpreneur at least three of them again that I know of. What does your day to day look like? <laughs> it kind of varies depending on the cycle through the year. So I, sometimes um, you know I think it's useful to think of the cycle of an entrepreneur is about. Uh, so firstly, identifying what's the gap, what's the problem, the priority that you need to address in your business. Maybe it's lack of leads. Maybe it's uh, that you haven't worked, worked out how to convert a lead into a sale or you haven't worked out how to effectively deliver the result for a customer so they're super happy or whatever it is. Like identify where is the gap, the hole, the problem in your business. And that on, it, in, on its own is useful activity then you've got to go and work out how to do it successfully so if it's like acquiring leads go and find the channel and it might be using experts and so on or it might be yourself but go and work out what works and then after that you go through a period of doing it and improving it but at some point you've got to step back out again you've got to document the process and hand it over and delegate it and onboard someone else into a role that includes a series of activities that that you've demonstrated can deliver that result and that allows you then to spend some time on doing that and hiring someone and onboarding them or whatever it is and that allows you to step back out again so you can repeat the whole cycle and so it kind of depends on where I'm at at any given point as to what my uh, time can look like. Um, but I'd say that, for example, at the moment, uh, an average week for me, so I'd probably spend uh, about four hours a week 
um, maybe four to five hours a week coaching the team. So whether it's my executive team on Spider Gap or whether it's uh, members of the Air Manual team or whatever, it's it's essentially coaching uh, other managers, leaders on how to do uh, how to achieve the results that we that we want. Um, then I probably have about a day of my time would be more strategic and thinking about the what's the big problems that we need to solve um and there's a variety of ways i mean i might spend that time i might spend it with my business coach i might spend it at events i might spend it as just sit down thinking time i might spend it with my co-founder on our exec sessions and so on and then um a lot of uh, a lot of the rest of my time at the moment is uh, because one thing's that uh, our priority and focus for particularly for air manual is to uh, create awareness that there are solutions to problems that people didn't realize uh, were uh, were available and that they've kind of had they've had to make do with poor fitting solutions and so we've got a better option so a lot of what i'm doing at the moment is uh, speaking at events uh, meeting new people having those conversations getting referrals um, as a result of speaking to a load of uh, consultants and coaches that serve our target audience. I was being asked, hey, do you offer a partner program? And we said, well, we're planning to in future, but we don't have it now. I got asked that question a few more times and realized, okay, we're setting up the partner program. <laughs> so we then created the partner program and got all the assets and the partner agreement and the training and all that kind of stuff in place so that we can start then onboarding partners. And so that's that's where I'm having to constantly spend my time is you know, have conversations, work out what the answer is, and then build it and then systemize it so that now my uh, sales and consulting team on the air manual side, for example, they can now explain what our partner program would look like and they can onboard someone into that program and so on. But obviously, until recently, it didn't even exist as a thing. <laughs> so that's kind of how I'm spending my time not recently, but if I wind the clock back, uh, clock back a year, I'd say I was spending most of my time taking responsibilities that I had, uh, including back there, about a year now would have been, uh, or a little bit earlier, would have been finance activities and passing those over to uh, to other members of the team and onboarding them and uh, delegating and so on so that it frees up my time. So it's kind of changes a lot throughout the year, but uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a lot of fun. I, 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 I do make sure I block out time for work-life balance. And, you know, I was at both of my kids' sports days over the last couple of weeks. And uh, we're, we're just about to go on a, essentially a six-week holiday and, uh, and a road trip. Um, but, yeah, I love, I love what I do. So I, I don't shy away from, from getting lots of time doing it. And uh, everything you just said is I love having tech entrepreneurs on the podcast because your mind works so much differently than like mine does or like a real estate investor. Cause I mean, I talked to them and they're like, well, I bought a house and then I bought another house and then, you know, I bought something else. And I mean, you're going marketing, financing, speaking programs, whatever our new product, I, my background's entirely in finance. I can't code. I can't do anything. And but, so when you start talking, it absolutely just blows my mind. Well, I apologize because if anything, I, I think that um, these are things that I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm doing, I think, what what most entrepreneurs do, which is wearing all of the hats. And I think and also the a lot of the things that I've described are not things that I was always good at or 
um, came to with a lot of natural experience or whatever, you know, posting on social media included, um, they're things that I've had to, in some cases, force myself to do um, because I've had, you know, because I've identified that's the, the the top problem or whatever. And I think, I think even for like, if you say someone in real estate, you know, for them growing the business is buying a house and then doing it up and then doing another one and, and so on. I think the opportunity for them is to then step out of that more and identify, well, actually, how could I think another level up and say, how could I turn that process of identifying the right house to buy, how to do it upright, how to sell it right, how to do those things, turn that into a process that then I can resource from other people so that I can step back so that I can increase that and, and as a result scale and get to a point where actually I'm now going to open up another location that also does that practice. And I think that's... Um, I guess that's where my head's at as a as an entrepreneur is it doesn't matter whether it's tech or or any other area it's going through that cycle of um identifying the priority addressing it you know working out the model that works and then trying to resource it and get back out of it again so that you can forget how to do it and move on i think it's so powerful for any entrepreneur in any industry to um to be able to kind of scale and maximize and uh, and ultimately, you know, retire early and, and or at least not need to not need to work forever. No, I, actually, I, re I really like that point. I'm in the process of doing something similar right now. Um, I don't think I've said anything about this, but I don't know. About a year ago, I started a social media management firm and I just hired a manager there. So hopefully I'm, I'm, we're about to be in the same boat. Fingers nice. crossed. Um, but uh, and. Out of curiosity, because when I went into this business venture, I knew from day one I wanted to step away. I wanted to grow it, step away, collect my passive income, go on to the next thing. Was that always your goal, or did you find that later down the road? Um, so it was never my goal, and um, and I'm unsure as to whether uh, that's a good or bad thing. I think what I do know is that it um, it may it meant that I was. Uh, always fully passionate about building the business in a way that it was enjoyable to be in it. I didn't want to build a business or a team that I wouldn't want to work with long term. And actually one of the side benefits of that has been that we end up with an amazing team that all, everyone loves working with and actually wouldn't want to go elsewhere even if they were paid two or three times the amount they are because it's such a great team to uh, to work in. And so I think that's helped that I didn't start out with the name of, oh, and I'm going to exit this business and uh, never really and, and never have. Um, but on the flip side, the, the danger to that is that you're perhaps you haven't got an eye on business value maximization and how to how to make sure that the business is as valuable and, and therefore can be uh, can be sold in future. So there, there's potentially uh, money left on the table there. Um, although that said, if you're doing it right and that you're building a business that you'd want to own and work in, then um, reduce it. Some of the things overlap with business value maximization. So, for example, um, for me, building a business that I want to own and work in and so on includes not being um, the business not being de critically dependent on me. It's important to me that I'm able to spend two, three weeks on holiday with the family and not get a single message or text message that I need to respond to. Um, it's important to me that if I was sick, that the rest of the team and the business could still operate. It's important to me that everyone else in the business is in a similar boat and none of them uh, are in that, in that situation. It's important to me that everyone 
is always developing and uh, that we have succession planning in place so that if someone does leave there are other people that can can cover you know can can take uh take that role and and so on and all of those things and and uh, other things like you know the retention customer retention is good and feedback's good and all and growth is good and all of those things of course are critical for creating a business that is highly valued at the point of exit um you know creating a business where you're not operationally required in it or at least that it's not critically dependent on you is both a great thing for you personally but also for selling it to someone else so i think um as long as you've got an eye on one or both of those i think that uh, you can uh, you can put yourself in a good position to to either exit or keep i i gotta say i, I think what i've learned here is you know so no matter what you do just be intentional about it and plan ahead of the long-term effects that kind of seems to be the go back every decision you talked about you have to understand what this is going to do with the business and does that meet the goals you're trying to reach correct me if i'm wrong on that please oh no i love that i think that's a really good way of putting it so you know you mentioned you know also stepping away six weeks with your family we talked about that before the call and here we are talking about it again now um were you always in that boat or did you you know 80 hour weeks grindstone late nights early mornings for a while was this a, a long-term goal reach or have you always just kind of, I mean, been a, I guess a free entrepreneur is how I'm going to describe it. Great question. So I'd say in the very, very early days, uh, both myself and my co-founder definitely did some, I guess, unhealthy working in, in our, in hours and, and particularly anti-social time of working. I remember a particular occasion when, uh, my now wife, but at the time, um, girlfriend, we hadn't, uh, I hadn't proposed at that point, uh, but we had started living together. And I remember that she, uh, well, I found out actually through a friend that she was planning on kicking me out and breaking up with me. Um, and one of the reasons that was because she was really angry and annoyed with the fact that I um, had on more than one occasion brought the laptop back to bed uh, late at night, still working late. And particularly, and the reason, you know, I was rationalizing it as well. I'm not, you know, I'm not just carrying on working. If that was the case, I'd do it in the office. But um, we've, we're going through the process of a release. My development team, team are making changes. Uh, I am currently the only person that can run the automated test scripts. Therefore, they're going to do a release. I'll run the automated test scripts. Everything will be fine. And then everyone's going to go to bed. And of course, then one the test fails. <laughs> and then we have to go through that loop again. And so that was hell. And uh, particularly, uh, she felt like, no, this is, this is unacceptable. And when I then found that out, I agreed. And so I changed everything from that point on. I made sure that we weren't doing late releases. We weren't doing releases on Fridays even because of the risk of the impact on the weekend. And really that's probably the start of a load of practices that my co-founder and I put into the business to improve work-life balance, both for us, but for everyone. And ever since then, uh, and to, or, or to identify specific ones, for example, every week, everyone in the company submits their employee happiness survey, um, where one of the questions is, how are you feeling on a scale of one to 10? So that gives us an opportunity to identify anyone that's not feeling great and what we can do as a business to improve that. Another question is how many days did you work late this week? Now we say to people like, we appreciate that most of you love your jobs and are very happy to work late on stuff that you find fun. However, if you're regularly working late, 
that creates a risk in your personal life. And also even let's say that you work two or three days late, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on stuff that you're loving. What if an issue comes up? That means you now have to work late on the Thursday. Like suddenly you've gone from a situation of, oh, this was great to your partner being like, oh, you've you've worked four days in a row late or, you know, or even even if you haven't got a partner, like even just the impact on your kind of burnout and your um, how you're feeling. So, so we're big on making sure that people don't do that on a regular basis and that we support them through their one-to-ones with their managers. Um, we also provide 40 days holiday to everyone and we make sure everyone takes them. We don't just assume that they might. So there's various things that we've put in place to make sure that we as the owners, but also everyone in the team does a good job of managing their work-life balance. And so no, people aren't working late and ourselves included on a regular basis. We are making sure that we're taking really decent amounts of holiday. We are looking after each other. We are identifying when uh, we're not as happy or a bit more frustrated and we're always looking for ways in which we can address that. So yeah, that's that's come, um, that came later, not immediately, but we've had that in place for a long time now. And so there is, I don't think there's a member of our team that would remember a time before that existed, which is nice. Excuse me for a moment. You mentioned 40 days of holiday. I'm over here crying in American. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, see, I think I get, how many do I get? I get 16, which is above my industry average where, where I work. And I, I, of course, work in finance in my nine to five. So 40 would be, I don't, I guess I'll definitely go see my parents more. They'd love it. Um. Yeah, well, it's funny. We um, we jokingly talk about the three-week club, um, which is that uh, generally people who join the organization have never had that amount of holiday uh, from their from their employer, as you say. Um, but one of the things it means is that when you when you have to take 40 days holiday per year, one of the most effective ways you could do that is at some point take a three-week holiday. Um, and and for some people, it's the first time they've ever taken anything more than a week, maybe, but certainly not more than two weeks. And so, uh, and there's something really powerful about that, like taking a three-week holiday, because in the first week, you're still a little bit thinking of work and you're still winding down. The second week, you then have wound down, but now you're very focused on maximizing your holiday. And then the third week is really when you're now like really winding down from the holiday. Like you're not, you're not, panicking and thinking oh I've got to make sure that you know oh we haven't been on a canoe trip yet it's like yeah of course you did Wednesday last week so so you can just sit and be and so I I see a lot of people reporting that a three-week holiday is a huge impact to their their sort of ability to reset and think and get back to being creative and strategic and so on so so it's really really effective and we love it as a model and it supports our fifth core value of enjoy the journey uh, really really well um, but it's, it's as, you know, I, I emphasize it's 40 days holiday and we make sure people take it because there's a bit of a, a fad or a, or a thing going on, particularly in uh, tech companies where they say, oh, we give unlimited holiday. And I, uh, and in fact, I've seen it in finance as well. I think was it uh, Goldman Sachs recently announced it for senior members of staff. And interestingly, you know, starting with senior and not doing junior, um, when actually most of the problems with their working times are junior stuff. Um, talk about creating a solution to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Um, but often the problem I see with those unlimited holiday policies is that they don't enforce a certain number of holidays because they haven't defined what is acceptable or what's expected. And therefore, you might have members of staff that are taking 10, 12, 15 days holiday and not even taking what they might do normally. Um, and even if they set a minimum, 
often the minimum is is embarrassingly low it's like as you know 13 15 kind of days and so they're not really giving infinite days to make people have proper work-life balance and take you know 40 days off and they're not managing it they're not making sure that the people who need it and that uh, and that people are really resting um are, are getting it so yeah so that's that's why we we do it that way around <laughs> You know, I, I go into all of these interviews with a bit of an agenda, and I was I was thinking on this one, you know, just life and SAS entrepreneur, but we might need a part two of just entrepreneur and business theory. This is the, some of the most insightful things I think we've had on the show. Oh, thank you very much. That's very very kind. <laughs> we are we are getting uh, near the end of the usual length I like these to be, so I'm going to start kind of wrapping it up. But if you're down for a part two, I think our listeners would be as well. I'd love to. <laughs> So, you know, I guess, you know, first off, Alexis, where can we find you online? Yeah, so uh, fortunately, for, for, fortunately, Alexis Kingsbury is pretty easy to find on social media. So do connect with me on, on LinkedIn, Facebook, or, or wherever you uh, prefer. I'm on most social ne- uh, media networks. Uh, so do follow me and I, I put out content regularly on, on various topics, uh, including how to improve your business through, through processes and how to onboard people into roles. Uh, one of the nice things is a lot of the things I've described about how to make your organization work really well. We've turned into um, template processes and things that you can literally just take straight into your business. So you can check that out at airmanual.co as well, which is, uh, uh, we've got great resources there and webinars and ebooks and so on. Um, you can learn more about SpiderGap at spidergap.com, but ultimately feel free to email me, alexis.kingsbury at airmanual.co. If, there's, uh, if you've got questions or there's anything I can help out with, uh, just reach out and connect and I'd love to help and I will link all of that down in the, the show notes below or if you're watching the YouTube version of this it will be in the video description Fantastic. and last question I ask everybody uh, what's next for Alexis yeah so I think that what's next for me will be um, upping the ante in terms of the partnerships and the uh, events and things that we're doing. I think we're we've been doing a lot of the foundations, particularly for so uh, uh, speaking specifically about um, air manual, but actually a lot of this applies to Spider Cup as well. Like I feel like we've been putting a lot of the foundations in, both in terms of creating an amazing product, getting fantastic feedback and reviews, and and creating something that's really special, but also creating the guidance and the uh, and the um, the best practice frameworks and assets around it. And I feel like next stage for us is amplifying that message. And I think there's a variety of ways in which that we can do that. So uh, you can, uh, if you follow, follow me on social media, uh, don't be surprised to start seeing mentions of uh, podcasts, books, <laughs> events and things uh, that we'll be using to uh, to get out there and help more people. Because ultimately that's, that's what I love doing is going and helping entrepreneurs, business owners, business leaders to have greater impact, free up their time, reduce the mistakes, improve the quality and uh, and ultimately do that for all of their team and empower, empower their people to do that. So, yeah, if I can if I can get more people that I can speak to and help do that, then I'll be happy. <laughs> love to hear it, man. Love to hear it. Well, again, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Joseph. Really, really appreciate it.